Matthew. And um, Matthew's one of the Gospels. One of the Gospels that was kept in the Bible. Yes. There's a few that were thrown out. So whatever, God, whatever Matthew says... He's a tax collector, <laughs> too. I don't know what that says about him. <laughs> he was like, this shit's definitely going to the home. Usually you have... We're recording this. We're yeah, we're recording this. These are the outtakes. Thank you so much for joining another episode of the Going Solo Podcast. This is your humble host, Matthew Mayer, coming to you from sunny Omaha, Nebraska. And it's really hot out, too. Summer times in Omaha. So excited to launch uh, this episode featuring uh, someone who, when you meet, you are definitely left a better person for it, and that is Kabir Segel. If you go to Google and type in Kabir's name, Kabir Segel, here are just some of the many things you're going to discover. So Kabir is an American author, composer, producer, Navy officer, military veteran, investment banker, and financial executive. He is the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of eight books. Eight. Um, he has also won several Grammy Awards and a Latin Grammy Award as a record producer. Kabir attended Dartmouth College and was a staff columnist for the university newspaper, The Dartmouth. He was also the bassist for the university jazz band, and he completed his postgraduate degree with distinction from the London School of Economics as a Reynolds Scholar. So I first got a chance to chat with Kabir over email several years ago and finally met him the first time at the 59th Annual Grammy Awards in Los Angeles. Uh, this interview that you'll hear is Kabir and I sitting down at 8 a.m. Yes, that's 8 in the morning on a Saturday, uh, the day before the 60th Annual Grammy Awards in New York City. Uh, we are sitting at a little table in the Four Seasons Hotel downtown New York, just a block from the World Trade Center. I'll also say this, in most interviews that I've done, I usually do a great deal of preparation with a pretty good idea of the direction it's going to go but with Kabir it's a little different yes I still came plenty prepared but one thing I've quickly found out about Kabir is that a conversation with him I would compare it to that of two younger kids walking through a playground and letting their curiosities take them on an exploration except this exploration is not make-believe Stepping into the world of Kabir Sagal not only makes you appreciate his natural talents as an author, a producer, a musician, a businessman, but even more evident for me anyways was the light that it shines on his charisms of teaching, service, and giving. This talk is not heavily edited. That's because the more you listen to Kabir, the more insights and I would say sparks of curiosity that will light up as you really take a listen to what he is saying. I would encourage you to listen to this interview uh, several times. I have listened to our conversation several times before putting it into this final format. And it took me on a lot of different paths and a journey that I was not planning that it would take me on. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that we spend with Kabir as he gives us insights into his world of creativity, the processes that he uses to bring creative output to the world, and how he balances so many different things all at once. There are some people that when you meet, you leave and you think to yourself, that was a pretty amazing individual. And that is Kabir. Here's my 8 a.m. coffee on a Saturday with Kabir Segel. First of all, I'm just, I'm truly honored to sit down with you at a Saturday at 8 a.m. Yeah. Of, uh, we're in the middle of Wall Street. We're in the shadow of the, of the New World Trade Center. And when I read so many interviews about you, just getting to know you more throughout the years, you're a published author, and at the same time, all these artistic projects you've done. If someone were to come to you in an elevator and say, hey, give me your elevator speech of who <laughs> is Kabir, how would you answer that? Oh man, I just like to create things in the world um, because creativity is something that I think we all have at different levels, 
and uh, I uh, I learn by doing and creating things, and I have a, I guess I have a curiosity about a lot of things. So, at uh, the most simple and fun, fundamental level, it's creation, and uh, that can be music or a book or, and I like to create things. I like to, to connect the dots between different topics and industries and. Um, and your namesake, Matthew, if you go back to Matthew, for example, the book of Matthew has, um, you don't think about it, but it's actually a book of um, finance. Uh, G- uh, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, he has 12 parables or something, and eight of them are about finance or what to do with money. I mean, Jesus talks about money so often in the book of Matthew, it makes you feel uncomfortable because he's talking about, like, you know, what to do... And most of it is like, using like um, farm analogies and so yeah. forth. So he's constantly like riffing on farm and this, and he's he's trying to make points through imagery, and he's trying to make points through like storytelling, and it's it's his uh, his use of narratives is really uh, profound. And so I've always thought like storytelling, whether whether it's music, whether it's writing, is one of the most like profound vehicles because you can talk about frailties, you can talk about um, entry, you can talk about strength, and you can communicate with people, and we're always telling stories, so I'm not sure what I do is biblical at, at, at any level, but I guess what I try to do is find, when I try to create something, like, well, what story are you trying to tell, and how do we do it at a level that people um, will pay attention yeah. and, and get it out into the world. So with that stories, I've also noticed in your career, it's a wide breadth of different cultures that you educate other people with. Talk about this newest project in, in 2018. I read that there's a certain practice of tying of the knots in, oh, in yeah. a certain culture. Like so that that's a, um, a festival called uh, Rocky. Um, the like the long word is called Rukshabundan, but it's called Rocky for short, and it's basically like a it's basically like a brothers and sisters day in India, and uh, it's, a, it's just it's a holiday where you go and you sister ties a thread bracelet around her brother and um, the brother then promises like love love respect devotion protection um, in the years ahead and so growing up I grew up in America but obviously with Indian heritage and grew up in Atlanta right yeah, grew up yeah. in Atlanta and uh, every August um, my sister would uh, tie a thread bracelet and um, you know my, my parents oh you got to do this so all right we'd roll our eyes but we did it and um, I would get my sister like a earrings or something, some jewelry, and uh, it's been, a, it's like, you know, obviously when you get older, the meaning, the holiday takes on greater meaning and significance, because it's, you know, now we live in different towns, and she'll mail them to me, and you know, you, it reminds me just of, of your bond between your brothers and sisters, and it's not, just, it's not just about between brothers and sisters, cousins and nephews and nieces do it, so when you go out into the streets of India around Rocky, everyone's tying thread bracelets around um each other's wrists, and it's just incredible, active uh, community. And uh, so the book is called, what is the book called? The book's called um, Thread of Love, and um, we wrote, my mother and I write these books together. And You've written several books, right? Yeah. Children's books, Children's books. With your mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this book is, uh, we're, I was saying, what, what children's story and uh, is about, maybe you, can, maybe you know about, that is, is about brothers and sisters and Sparajaka. Right, Ferrajaka. Yeah. So yeah. we, I rewrote the lyrics of Ferrajaka to "Thread of Love," and um, you know, "Are you sleeping? Are you sleeping, brother G? Brother G? Jesus, I respected him. The, um, what is it? I'm making you a rocky, making you a rocky. Thread of love, thread of love. While you're sleeping, while you're sleeping, I will make, I will make." Something, something, something. <laughs> but it's just, you know, but you can you can sing it along. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of around the meaning and and uh, yeah. It's, and yeah. you mentioned that that was um, in the culture of India, but you also, I read that you your first startup actually was in India, wasn't it? Yeah. With with a co-founder, and then yeah, um, you started that, but then you transitioned into the financial world with J.P. Morgan. Yeah. And well, I was. I just finished um, grad school in London, and uh, <clears throat> I moved to India and with a, a fr- friend of mine, and we started a company. It was like a social network for for a social network for Indians, and it was built around education, like teaching each other skills, and it was great. We learned a lot, and um, then we ran out of money, and I was like, oh, we should, someone should probably get a job, and 
So I applied for a job and I uh, got a job as, as a computer coder at J.P. Morgan. And uh, I actually had two offers, J.P. Morgan and Lehman Brothers. And I chose uh, J.P. Morgan based on the office location. Nice. <laughs> and silly. It was sometimes the stupid decisions are, are fine decisions. And Those so. are sometimes what you look back like, hey, I'm so glad I made that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, now. exactly. <laughs> so I ended up working there and... Um, we had, a, we had an offer to sort of acquire the company. We should have taken it, and I, we just kind of held on for too long. And that was it, so it failed, and I ended up at J.P. Morgan. It was a good place to end up, because it was right around the time the credit crisis began yeah. in, in 2008. Yeah. And uh, I sort of held on to my job, and um, my job was to sort of find deals around the world and sell deals around the world in emerging markets, and I really got to see a lot of how this world, not, you know, how the, how the markets work, and it was just like, you know, it was awesome I was doing deals in Sri Lanka and Japan and like Nigeria and it was at a young age you see how people communicate how cultures do business and it opened my eyes to seeing oh okay so uh, and I guess looking for patterns of how finance or how systems work because uh, every day you're you're in boardrooms talking to executives and talking to investors and uh, you give them some resources and you have some vision, you can, you can do something with it. So that experience, traveling around the world, do you feel that that, you talked about making connection, do you feel that that spurred more creativity on all these other projects that you've done, the music albums that you've done, do you feel that that totally. fueled it? Well, the markets are an incredible way to um, find and express your creativity because if you, like, if you want to make money, you can just get interested in something and you can read about something in the newspaper and then figure out how to invest in that thesis, right? So if you believe, like this year, uh, if you believe that, for example, um, there's going to be an increasing rise in populism around the world, say, for example, yeah. how would you express that as an investment? And then you can go and do the analysis, and you can find things that are like second derivative or third derivatives. Like one um, example of this is music. So like music uh, revenues, the industry is growing again after like, 30 years of contraction. So how do you invest in that? Is like, I'm, I'm a, I was a finance guy, I'm interested in music, and I, I would, you can invest in the streaming, so maybe you can go buy um, something else that's a derivative of that. So maybe you can buy, go buy music catalogs, right? Then you gotta go talk to some um, estate lawyers to see which catalogs are coming up for auction. So you just, you have a view that, that the market's gonna do X, and you say, what are the five different ways I can invest in that? And that's a, like an ex that's finding connections. So you're kind of breaking it down. Yeah. If I want to go this route with it, here's tangible, objective things that I can do. Right. To unlock this. And, totally. And, and you obviously dig down. Yeah. And figure it out. There's that, yeah, and there's also just the. I mean, I think I think certain people are wired different ways. Like, yeah. I, it's hard for me to sit and, um, you know. Just, do nothing. I mean, a lot of people are like yeah. that, but it's just, I find it productive to be working on things with people and to be collaborating with people because that you actually, it creates like a, a purpose to a conversation and a relationship. And, yes. and, uh, when you collaborate with someone, you get to know someone on, on a deeper level. And, um, and that's what I, I do a lot of collaboration. So it's fun to work with folks and, and see, and the, but there's also a priority on, um, on doing things and execution. And because people are like, oh, let's just sit around and think it out. So no, man, just do it as fast as possible. Mm. I mean, obviously with mm. like, with like, you know, thought, but like, just get it out because people say, you know, and this may be heretical, but is it quality or quantity? I'm like, it's always quantity. Just get it out because oh. over time, um, you're gonna like, ink your craft is gonna get better, just by the practice of doing. And over many years, you'll look back and be like, wow, like, the the baptism by fire or the marketplace is going to teach me so many lessons that if I try to craft it perfectly in my head. Uh, Reid Hoffman, the, the founder of LinkedIn, has this great quote. He says, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, <laughs> right, you're moving too slowly. And so awesome. you just keep iterating, 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 and it gets out there, and then you create this velocity of things. And you know, maybe the quality's not good. The quality will get better. You think that there's a fear sometimes that people rest on to take those steps to say, geez, you know, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to write my first book, but it's going to be crap, or I, I, I'd like to do this, but yeah. I don't have the credentials behind my name. I mean, can you tie that in and just say, yeah. well, it's not about that, it's about... Start with, start with where you are, and mm -hmm. um, I mean, my books are, 
I get an email every day that I, I send to myself. It's like an automatic email, and it's, um, did you write 250 words today? Sometimes I say no, but most I of the time, yeah. Like yesterday, I, I didn't write 250 words, but because uh, you realize you want to be extraordinary, you got to do like the ordinary things really well. Just do write 200 words, and it's a thousand words in a, a week, and then that's you know 4,000 words a month. That's 40,000 words in you know over 10 months is half a book. And so, and then all of a sudden, like a year goes by, you're like, okay, I got a, a book. And so if you want to be great, it's about giving up something good today for great tomorrow. And it's also always about just, um, but emphasizing like the execution. Because if you think about like the great minds of all time, Albert Einstein's, the Shakespeare's, um, like a genius isn't someone who has, and there's research on it, a genius isn't someone who has um, better ideas, they have like more ideas. And uh, there's been studies that are looking at like, all right, like Shakespeare, after he wrote like his best books, he wrote his worst book. And then right after that, it was his best book. And he just had, there was just, like this period where he was incredibly productive. Same thing with Bach. Like Maya, Maya Angelou has like seven autobiographies, but we know one of them, you know? Right. And so we only hear about the really good one. Yeah. And, but maybe there's a reason for that, right? <laughs> but like she wrote seven of them and it's like, there's a priority on like execution, and the genies are the people that have just more ideas, and because they're they're batting three hundred, you know, but they're taking ten shots at it, right? So, yeah. well, and going back to what you said about doing the ordinary things extraordinary, or yeah. just doing the ordinary things really well. So, one of my first interactions with you a, a couple of years ago, when we, you know, going through be, being a part of the this, Music world, this community, yeah. what I was so impressed about you, one of the projects you were doing. Um, presidential suite project uh, that had like Ted Nash on it and, and Wynton Marcellus and, and they were performing in Omaha and I remember you took the time for these personal messages that usually when you're working on so many projects you know you assume kind of a yep so and so will get in touch or I'll have my age or whatever get in but I remember you saying hey Matt um, do you want tickets to this event and, and, and you offered them to me and, and my wife and we, we sat four or five rows from the front and it was a beautiful beautiful concert and you followed up and and we've talked on the phone a couple times since then but I've always been um, taken by your personal touch on a higher scale volume of who you're in touch with and I think that's important right so talking about your relationships like that's what you remember with people yeah and you're like you remember that simple just say hey you know even though you might use other tools or we might use other mass tools um, whether communication, whether it's MailChimp to do campaigns or whatever, and setting that up in a smart way, that's one thing. And setting it up, automating it in a way that, that has that. But you you take those times to do that. Yeah. And I think that really... Well, I mean, I was talking about Maya Angelou. She said, you know, the greatest gifts, the greatest gift you can give someone is your presence. And, um, wow. you know, people remember not what you say, but how you make them feel or with that presence that you sort of leave them with. And... Uh, that's, you know, you don't want to mess around with that. A lot right. of people, when they want something, you only hear from them when they want something. That's right. But you got to be with people all the time. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's relationships uh, and, you know, how you make other people feel. And I always say the more you make people smile, the glow comes back on you. And not everyone needs to know everything you're doing. Just, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so it's, it's you know, I think it's um, today with the you know, massive information, you know, you should be contrarian and like, okay, when people are texting, you call. When people are writing emails, you write handwritten letters. And you just, you always gotta think about, not just separation from the pack, but doing something that people uh, notice. Because I think people are noticed. People do take, like you said, people take a note of how you, what you do and how you carry yourself. And, and um, but I tell you, man, it's an army of one, you know, and it can be lonely. You just do it, and um, no one's gonna no one's gonna do it for you. So you just gotta be hungry and hustle and well, make it happen. And another example yeah. is your. So you mentioned Maya Angelou, and you produced an amazing project home, um, uh, both with uh, Deepak Chopra and Paul. After I, I always I get his last name. Paul A. a Paul yeah. Pabdorinos, Yeah. Um, you you've worked with these amazing people. Do you, do you ever stop and think, wow, how am I sitting, you know, how am I collaborating? How am I in Deepak Chopra's home right now? Or, or, or do you think, you know what, I, I'm going to treat everybody I meet the same. And 
the projects that come out come out? Like, how do you yeah. approach these these amazing levels of different relationships that you have in your life? Um, well, you know, again, starting with where you are and one thing leads to the other. Like with Deepak Chopra, I I knew him. Um, I'd written a book um, eight years ago now with my godfather Andrew Young, and he um, had me on a show, and we just kind of kept up. On his, Deepak had us on his radio show. I've admired him for being a prominent Indian American, and I knew I wasn't really turned on to his like philosophy, and I didn't know much about his philosophy and spiritualism and so forth. And, and then we just sort of like traded traded emails, and you know, it's, it's this whole idea of collaboration that you want to work with someone one day. I mean, it was eight years of knowing each other, right? And I didn't have I didn't really think about ever working with him. It just um, happened. I was working with Ted Nash on the Presidential yeah. Suite. And he Which was, won the Grammy last year? Yeah, I, and I was yeah. there. And yeah, I, I yeah, saw, yeah. I got a couple of pictures with you guys. Yeah, um, and the first time to actually meet you face to face, which was which was really fun. Um, yeah, but congratulations. Thank on, you, man. Thank on you. that, I believe you have you have two Grammy wins and one Latin Grammy win. Is that? Yeah. And a lot of different nominations. You have a nomination yeah, this yeah. year for another project. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Up uh, for a project called Jazz Tango, um, Lat, best Latin jazz album, and uh, and then. Um, Best Instrumental Composition, Arturo O'Farrell, uh, for Three Revolutions. It's early. I'm trying to remember all the words. In. I'll tell you what. But, um, yeah, but, you know, this is, back to Ted. Um, yeah. Ted needed, like, uh, Ted wanted, did this piece taking Nehru's speech, Prime Minister of India, turning it into music. And I'm a little just... Good. talked about that in an interview. He's like, if you notice how this person talks, and then he, it was very interesting. Turning speeches. Like, right now, we're not, we're making sounds with our voices, frequencies, don't think coffee voice. Coffee, yeah. Ca- caffeinated voice. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's the thing, it's and so I just reached out to Deep. I was like, hey man, you want to do this? And so yeah, and then after that, after um after Ted's album came out, Deepak really liked it and it's like, we should do something and we just talked and we were talking about doing something about poetry. He wanted to do like something about Rumi. I was like, man, Rumi's great, but like Rumi's been done and like you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Man, I wish I could just be in a conversation where I could say that. I mean, yeah. I think that's that would be the yeah. sign for me if I could say, "Hey, hey, man! I mean, Rumi's great, but yeah. you know, he's been done. Let's let's do it." I yeah, mean, I mean, I'm sure, awesome. Deepak, I'm sure Deepak would have done a great, and he's done like a, a thing on Rumi. And I was like, you know, today, like, uh, it was early 2017, new political situation, and Deepak is an immigrant. I'm the son of immigrants, so we just wanted yeah. to do something that shines a light in a subtle. Um, positive way and um, on immigration, and Paul is a son of, an Im- of immigrants, and so um, it was a fun project to work on. But no matter, yes, about who you w- partner with, this like sometimes it's just like a slow hunch, right? You just know yeah. someone, and then there's some project three years yeah. from now. It's like, oh, that, I remember, and they just put things together, and so much of it is just getting the right people on the bus, and then driving in, in the same direction. It feels like you no matter who you're working with at any level, you feel like you can push creatively with somebody as opposed to just saying, okay, I know I'm working with so-and-so, so I'm going to have to do this, this, this. And I'm sure there's parts of that and to be able to push back creatively and say, okay, yeah, th- this sounds good, but hey, have we considered this? Yeah. And for them to be open to that, um, kind yeah. of sign that that's beautiful collaboration. Sure, sure. And that's, that's what, it's, what it's about, about learning from each other and, yeah. and being un- uncomfortable and and, and growing and so that's a big thing for me is like um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do something that was non-jazz because like I've kind of I've been in jazz you're, for a you're a time. bass player yeah yeah as well yeah exactly and uh, with my with these album projects I'm like man how many al- how many jazz albums am I going to do I mean I've done them and they're, they're exciting but I want to learn a new, different genres yeah. and that's where the growth is when you get into a room and working with Paul I never worked I never knew really about new age and you your music actually introduced me to your new age your, to the new age space and you're a phenomenal pianist and the elegance and poise you have and the aesthetic that you have it really is like separated from the pack wow. and um, so it's in the, our community it's like great to meet people from different walks right. of right. of life and and so Collaboration is about growth and being in uncomfortable situations. Mm. Um, so, because when you're uncomfortable, you're growing, and literally your brain's getting rewired. Like the neuroplasticity of your neurons is like trying to form new relationships. And, and so, being uh, willing to step into that uncomfortableness yeah. and, and get messy in the sauce, the totally. creative sauce, a little bit, and yeah, 
That's yeah, really good. That's what it's about. Um, so I could go so many, I could spend a lot of time with you here yeah, today, man. but I feel like your life is so much a balance of of what people would look at on the outside as two different worlds, but at the same time, you have successfully bridged them together. And I really loved a Harvard Business Review article that you penned um, that I actually shared with some people as well, in which you talked about the benefits of working a quote unquote, you know, eight to five, but also um, the benefits that can bring to your creative world. A long time there's been this perception of, well, you either have to do this or you have to do that. Or people get asked the question, who are you? What do you do? And being able to describe that, but you, yeah. you bridge that together, and it connected with me because I live kind of a similar, similar yeah. life in a different, in a different realm. Did it take you a while to kind of pull those worlds together, or have you, has that always made sense to you that you can do these things and you can interlock them, and doing better in one makes you better in the other? Yeah, it's, it's how I've um, been. I've, it's, it's sometimes been a point of insecurity. Yeah. If, you know, young men, sure. yeah, young men focus on one thing, do it well. Like, why are you doing all this stuff? For sure. And I'm like, maybe I should focus and move up on in my in my day job or my music thing. And so, like, but you know, you grow and you you, you start to see success in different fields. You're like, well, maybe maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And um, you know, I do try to connect things that don't belong together because, in some sense, um, you're competing with yourself. Right. Right. They, t- they talk about like incremental ideas and intersectional ideas an incremental idea is taking something like a cup of coffee and it's like oh hey like let's like put let's make it more caffeinated or put sugar in it okay great like that might be an innovation you brought it yeah like two or three percent innovation and that's what a lot of big companies do but intersectional ideas like okay let's um take coffee and um let's like dramatize how it's made and let's do an opera about the coffee planters in Colombia, and okay, so who's doing operas on coffee makers in Colombia, right? All of a sudden, back to breaking that down, what yeah, you just mentioned. All of a sudden, you're like the one person in the room, and then you do it, and then it gets picked up by the local newspaper, and like, you know, the local uh, coffee make local guy who owns the coffee shop sees it, and he wants you to stage it in the his place so you do it and then you run into some investor and like oh hey man like my wife loves opera and she sits on the board of the Philadelphia Opera we want to stage it there <laughs> next awesome. thing you know you're being reviewed by the Philadelphia Inquirer and, I mean that's how this works and like because I like to do things like and you're competing with yourself you know because no one else is doing it For sure. and it's easy to do when you find things that don't belong together and try to mash them together and then all of a sudden it's like oh you've created a new genre or you've created a new aesthetic or that's what, like, look at the food market, like the whole, like, um, global cuisine, because fusion food, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, you, how many Chinese restaurants are, but then the Chinese put it with Mexican, you're like, oh, wow, like, there's a Chinese-Mexican place across the street, like, okay, that's that one place, and everyone knows it, and maybe not in New York, because everything's fusion here, but, um, you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, For sure. you just got to keep combining things, and... Um, and see what sticks. I pulled up an interview that you did um, with, uh, this one was um, at CNBC, uh-huh. and it was titled How I Made It From Wall Street to the Grammys, mm-hmm. you know, and talking about this, and, and I talked about your experience at, at J.P. Morgan, and um, but I love this quote that you gave. You said, while my output may seem prolific, also know that I have foregone many things and continue to do so, such as television, habitual exercise and chronic socialization that really sticks out to me because sometimes I'll get asked hey how do you have the time mm-hmm. I can only imagine how many times someone's asked you that but less so because I don't socialize as much but <laughs> <laughs> yeah I hear you though um, you know on the outside it's probably easy for people to draw these conclusions like oh geez I mean look at this but do you feel like you've made a lot of sacrifices personally of how you have given yourself to all these different projects? Or do you feel the sacrifice is more a service? Yeah, I think it's um, just living how you want to live, man. And like, yeah. you know, that throw line, live the life that you imagined. And like, I've always been a guy on, on like, on uh, delayed satisfaction, right? Like, I have, instead of having the marshmallow today, I'll have it, give me the marshmallow in three years, right? And so, I'll work every day for a so better So you have that discipline. Yeah, I think so. 
like the Ted Nash project, we worked for several years, I think four or five years on that project, and we pushed it a year because we wanted to put out in the presidential election year. And so, but I'm working on enough projects that I can, you know, push and You're pull. You're still stimulated with something. Yeah. But yeah. you can... I have enough things in the pipeline or the pro- in, in, on the different stoves to figure out what to heat up at the right time. And so, for me, it's... Um, yeah, and you asked about sacrifice. Look, there was a time when you were younger, like, oh, okay, like, I should maybe be going out or something. But I didn't find that was really rewarding to go kick it with guys and, like, and it's like, man, like... I totally relate. Yeah, let's go, like, make something, you know? I totally relate. Like an opera about, like, coffee makers in Columbia. You know what I mean? It's just, like, I want to make someone... Because life is short, let's, like, leave sure. a legacy behind and, like, and let's... Um, build things and a lot of people don't want to do that and everyone can teach their own right but um but you've got to people say to me oh like, how do you find the time so like, you make the time and they're like oh by the time I come home I feed the dogs you know have you know hang out with the kids cook dinner I don't, I don't do any of that stuff I just come home and work I mean yeah. I, I don't even I just write all day and so like so the work-life balance is really intertwined for you yeah it is you are living the life that you want to live yeah even though it's quote unquote work, but it's work that you truly yeah, yeah. is driving you and inspiring you. Yeah. My, my weekends look like my like my work days. It's well, which up. is evident because when I got a hold of you, you were so nice to say, hey, how's eight o'clock on Saturday? So I'm like, awesome, man. But but I think that, that yeah. speaks to, of course it speaks to your schedule. Of course it speaks to all the things you're doing. But it also speaks to this discipline that, you're right. I think a majority of people would say, "What? Why eight o'clock on a Saturday morning um, during Grammy weekend in New York City when you've got all these things, all these socializations?" But you, for you, your approach is, "Hey, um, you, you made time, which yeah. I'm so appreciative of." You say, "Yeah, it's eight o'clock." You know. Well, well guess what's up? Guess, guess is rolling for the day, which is good. Well, yeah, right, right. There's, there's that. Uh, Adam McRaven has that book called "Make Your Bed," and the first thing you should do is make your bed and. You know, if you make your bed, that's one good thing you've done for the day, and that'll lead to the second thing. And if the day doesn't go like how you want I saw it to, that speech. yeah, at least you come back and your bed's made. And so now we're up early, and yeah, I would have slept. Tim in. Ferriss talks a lot about that yeah. too, oh, about, does about making the bed in the morning, which he which which he borrowed from the admiral. admiral. Yeah, and I mean, it's all about doing execution at small, doing small things. Execution. Adam, Adam Craven ran JSOC, and he was like Joint Special Operations Command. I, I really admire the guy. Um, those special operators. Uh, many of whom I worked, or some of whom I worked with, they um, they understand that like execution happens like with like sharpening your pencils and making your bed, right. and like you just do those things and they add up. And so, if you want um, to do something, I was like, let's just do it right away and quickly, and let's get it done, and we'll move on to the next thing. And so now it's like we're saying, in the, I'm not a marine, but, but it's like marines is like right. it's like it's eight o'clock in the morning. You know, everyone's America's wake just waking up, and we're already halfway through our day. Right, <laughs> right. You know? right. We've so. already swam five miles when yeah, exactly. had our Cheerios, <laughs> and then while well, you're getting your coffee, and you mentioned so you mentioned the the service, and my understanding is that you're in the Navy, yeah. Naval Reserve, yeah, and um, you you've won an award there. Can you tell just a little bit about your service to, to our country? And yeah, so I just I just um, wanted to. I got bored of my banking job, and I was like, I want to be more than I can be. So I called, called the recruit, military recruiter, and uh, <laughs> my mom was like, you want to do what? I was like, yeah, yeah. My, my parents were, like, against it. So they I, were. Yeah. And I, I got, because they were like, you know, why do you want to make our life more difficult, and why do you want to go in the military? And like, I just want to try it. And so I um, actually, it's a funny story. Actually, I went down to the financial building, which is not too far from here, and I walked in, and I was... You know, he said, oh, you're a J.P. Morgan banker? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, that guy's a J.P. Morgan banker. And there's, like, another guy in the waiting room from the same building, from the same floor, like, three, <laughs> three rows down from me. And, like, we looked at each other, and it was just like, we, we met since big camp. We didn't know each other, but um, it was like, yeah. Serendipitous events, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, I got commissioned. It was awesome. And <laughs> then I, you know, I've been in for several years now, and it's one of the best things I've done in my life because... You um, meet so many talented people, and people who come into the military are from so many different walks of life, and it, you get introduced to people you never would have been introduced introduced to, and uh, you get challenged, and like you have to sort of your um, 
perception of the world, your view of things. Man, like I, I was deployed in the Middle East, and it was like, you just, you, uh, the conversations, you like, it's immersive, like breakfast, lunch, dinner, and you just are a sponge, and you're picking up how people see the world and think about the world, and it's very different from your, like your, your tribe or your, the family you're with, with at home, and, um, but then there's obviously like, the, the, the challenge of the actual task, which is trying to keep America safe, and um, I can't tell you how like you know, proud I am to be part of it, and like the thing is is. We're sitting here in New York, but there's people like halfway around the world are like you know, brothers and sisters who are like protecting us, and we don't see a lot of stuff, most stuff, and it's cool to be part of that experience. And um, you know, the um, the Navy has a great thing about tradition, and uh, great thing has a great emphasis on tradition, but great emphasis on execution. And uh, I always um, come back to like. If you want to get, get something done, give it to a Navy officer or somebody in the Navy. They'll get it done. And My brother Max will, will uh, love to hear this because yeah. he he's a Naval Academy graduate. Yeah. He served on the, the, the submarines for, for years. and, and uh, So he'll, he'll very, be very much appreciative and have a bond with you. But I uh, have so much respect for, for you and, and everyone who has served our country. Um, how long were you in the Middle East for? For a while. Yeah. Okay. For, for a while. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I, should, yep. I, should, I should say though that, um, you know, like I'm a reservist, and uh, I had some even the military. I had like some, I don't know, insecurity, but it was like, oh, you're a reservist, and like you're not full time military. But then I realized, like after I went forward and came back, that like the civilian, um, civilian civilians have a lot of like um, skills they can like bring into the military, because they, again they see the world differently right. and. I was a J.P. Morgan banker, got deployed, and I was like, wait a second, like, you know, this is my, and you see things differently, and all of a sudden, you become that young Navy lieutenant who can't shut up about, you know, <laughs> how we do things on Wall Street, <laughs> and, uh, well, again, I mean, they're just, I could take it incremental with you, I could take this to the next level again, is, we're, speaking of Wall Street again, weren't you also, um, I thought I read that you were part of a the Alibaba IPO? Yeah. I mean, this... Well, that was through J.P. Morgan. It was just like, you know, they, they had to raise a lot of money, and it was, that was incredible going on that road show, and you know what was interesting about that? It was, because Alibaba was a deal you didn't really have to sell because everyone wanted to be in it. It was fascinating seeing the tables turn where, like, the, uh, the investors, like, were kind of, like, pleading to get in on it. Like, there's, like, really prominent investors, big people you read about in the papers, and uh, for once it was like I had like some influence, <laughs> you know? very little, but I mean like the bankers, like but you were part of yeah, that. Yeah, it was fun, it was fun. I mean I was played a really small small role, but like Jay Morgan was one of the lead book runners on it, it was an Asia deal, and I did emerging markets, and it was, uh, it was fascinating to see uh, at that level, like how high finance works. Yeah. So of all these different things that you've done, yeah, professionally, creatively, all of it, is there one that sticks out to you that says, wow, this one, what an amazing experience this one was? Um, the next one, you know, like, I mean, yeah, I've done a lot of uh, fun things, but I think about the next experience is gonna be amazing. I don't know, I'm not trying to be evasive, it's just yeah. like, it's just like, make the next one great, yeah. and keep on pushing forward, and uh, you know, I don't harp too much about the past, I think about, you know, how do we, how do we, um, feel something um, and that's another thing about like the gap between like seeing things and doing it is uh, when you do think, do enough things and create enough thing, uh, create a new not enough products in the world and that line gets blurred and you start to like visualize how things can work and as soon as you see it for me it's like oh, I can see it and it's there I visualize it I see that project and it's done it's already done in my head and then you just have to like you know color it in and um, that's what I think so it's like when you see the next amazing thing it's like oh I I was just working on a project it's probably gonna come out this summer and I um, it's a recording project and I spent seven hours in the studio yesterday in the morning it was done and it's like okay, that's gonna be amazing and so it's like a fun it's fun to just constantly be tinkering and working with people and I don't know, it doesn't make much sense but keep on focusing on um, 
where you can be growing, how do you be uncomfortable, put yourself in those situations. And the more you do that, you're gonna your quality is gonna ramp up and you're gonna create something amazing and remarkable. So that's a great way to segue into questions I always like to ask is what what would be your biggest advice for somebody that um, that has these creative spirits and insights and they're just like, Well, I don't you know, I can't do this or I can't do that because I don't have a I don't have an MBA or I don't have um, this credential like like uh, what would be your your advice to anyone aspiring to do some of the things that you've done it's simple but it's it's start with where you are and like there's there's a door open to you whatever that door is like take it because it's like life is like a big game of Zelda you just like all these like secret passages and stuff and doorways and you just have to like kind of like figure it out you have like this lantern light and you gotta like you know walk as far as the light can, you can see and then you go up there and then there's you can see more of the you know these these shadows are nomadic and so the you can you're constantly casting casting away shadows and illuminating your path and uh, you'd be so surprised how like you you put something into the world it ripples out and then that someone introduces someone else and look if it's, and it's all about taking uh, it sounds right one step at a time like two steps in one direction you meet someone and then now you're five steps down the road with them and um, so if you don't have an for example you don't have an MBA like it's okay if you you want to learn business it's you know um, my, my godfather Andrew Young he says you know he'd rather work at McDonald's than go to Harvard Business School because you're going to learn a lot more about customer service and making wow. people happy and uh, temperament and people's attitudes and H- HBS I didn't go to business school but you know it's great but like and you'll learn about how to speak corporate and everything but when you go work at a corporation I don't think you should speak corporate you should you know speak in a way that people you should speak medical in a corporation in, in, because you should be thinking about things differently and some, wow. sometimes the experience in left field is going to prepare you um, and there was there was that advice that um, Tim Russert I remember Tim Russert from NBC he, t- he talked about he was an intern in Patrick in, in Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's office, uh, Senator from New York, and all these kids were from Ivy League schools, and they had done like amazing things with their life. And Tim Russert had it; he was just like this kid from a local college or whatever. And Sir Patrick Moynihan, Sir Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, said, "Look, um, you can learn what they learned, right? But they can never learn what you learned, because he'd come from like a tougher part of." of society in the world and so I say that the harder you have it like that's something like a lot of people aren't going to be aren't experienced and like all the rich bratty kids who uh, have you know they're not going to want it as badly as you they're not going to have the hustle and that's with me like I that was an immigrant from India right and I grew up with all these like rich kids in Atlanta but I saw how hard hard my dad was hustling and I was like I'm going to freaking do this you know (laughs) and so every day I saw how hard he worked and um, you know he didn't he didn't come from much at all, and so uh, you if you if you think you have a disadvantage, think of it, it really as an advantage because this is testing you. And once you get to where we're going, you know it's like a Steve Jobs says, it's like you'll be able to connect the dots looking back, but never going forward, and you'll see how one thing leads to the other, and how how elegant your life can come together. That's beautifully said. Yeah. And going back to that Steve Jobs interview. I think in the same interview he said, life is like when you figure out you can take your finger and poke it, something comes out on the other side. Yeah. That, and, that's, and, it, and it gives yeah. you that and it gives you that excitement to say, hey, I can make a difference. Yeah. And that spoke to his, his curiosity. You know, Steve Jobs in his commence, commencement address in 2005 at Stanford, um, this whole thing, like, he gave one of the best commencement addresses, I think, of all time. And, uh, but there's that Thing, which is you know follow your passion follow what you want to do that was actually kind of bad advice because um, well he didn't take his own advice because when he graduated from college he didn't graduate from college first of all he dropped out uh, went to India and like dropped some acid and yeah you know but if he was and then and then he like if he was passionate about technology let's say he was passionate about technology he'd have like gone to school got a degree in computer science worked as an intern at Hewlett Packard worked his way up like right. He didn't know he was interested in, in technology <clears throat> until he wandered into Steve Wozniak's garage and was like, what are, you, what are you working on, right? And so 
what Steve was good at was he was curious and he was like a wanderer. And so that quote you said about poking something, you've got to poke what you're interested in. So I would say follow your curiosity. Don't follow your passions because you may not know what your passions mm. are. And you may not be good at your passions, but follow your curiosities. Because when you follow your curiosities, at least you have an interest and an intent in learning. And that will be the fuel that you need to like learn about it and maybe even get good at it. And once you get good at it, you'll develop a craft, or and then you can you know use that craft to um, to separate yourself. And you know what's called uh, Cal Newport writes about this. He's you know you'll be able to um, the craft you get what's called career capital. You get good at something, right. and then you can trade what you're good at for what we all want, which is more autonomy, more freedom. And so I would say anyone get good at something whether it's your job or something. If you get really good at your job, you can then ask for, I want to work four days a week. Yeah. Or I want to work three days a week. And then uh, you have that extra day to schedule how you want to. And that's what I did at Jake Morgan. I was like, hey, talking to my manager, I was like, hey man, um, you know this morning meeting that everyone comes to at 6.30 in the morning? Like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> how did that go with you? Yeah. With you? Well, at the point, I, I was like a big revenue producer. He's like, all right, man. He's like, don't tell anyone. Just like, you know. Right. It'll be our, our thing. He's like, come to a couple of them like a week. I was like, all right. So then I went to like two a week, and and people were like, well, what, you know, why 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 is he not going? And I was like, well, he's he's working on his other stuff. Sure. And, but he's also a big revenue producer, and, and like, right. But you, you, you can't prove your yeah. You prove yourself, and then he said, look, do I really need to be going through all the motions? Because I got some other things I want to be working on, and and so I would just uh, figure out how can you. That's the trade you want to figure out. How do you? trade career capital for, for well and in that example you had to poke right yeah you you had to take that action to say hey i'm gonna have a conversation yeah yeah you just kind of kind of lock in but um and like when um when that happens you you say okay um you know how do you how do you design your day where because I, w- I w- even in banking people talk about oh i work so hard it's like we don't work that hard i mean we just like yeah, we work hard, but like people sometimes, are, I look around at lunch, everyone's reading ESPN and hanging, right. everyone's hanging out, talking about whatever's happening. Like, Is it hard or smart? Yeah, exactly. So if you were to design your day and you only had three hours to do your job rather than 10, like what are the things you would actually do? Mm. And then do those things and all of a sudden, then you're at home hanging out and you're not the zero, you're the hero. You, you figured out how to maximize your job. And the other seven hours you can use for recording that totally. you did yesterday yeah. and finish this amazing project. Yeah. Be efficient. If you, if you, yeah, if you were to take out all the white space in your job mm. and just do the, the kernel of activity, and um, yeah, and you have a lot of free time, actually. Wow. There's a myth that like people work really hard. I saw the survey that like 60% of Americans or workers around the world are like disengaged or don't love their job. And yeah. People just hang. No, I do know people, like, I know there's people in, like, in critical jobs, like if you're a doctor or something, you probably want to be switched on. But in a lot of the service jobs, it's like, look, man, like, just respond to email really fast and, like, get, you know, be on top of your email and, like, and delegate properly and get back to people. But then, like, once you respond to an email, okay, like, when you get an email, that's what I do, you get an email, I need you to do something. Got it. All right, so from got it to when you actually do it, it's probably a few days, right? But at least you sent the message that you're on it. Yeah. And now you can, like, finish whatever you're doing, unless someone really needs something. But when do you really need something that's, like, burning in, in you know, big corporate America? Like, what's a true emergency? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, people yeah. love you, Jay Moore. People like, Jay Moore, what do you, people, my colleagues or clients, how are you doing? I'm like, I would always say I'm underworked and overpaid. And <laughs> people look to me like, are you freaking kidding me? I was like, yeah, man, if you look at <laughs> If you look, if you look at the like national media what people actually make we got it pretty sweet here and considering what we're doing I don't I'm not wearing a hard hat or anything I'm not, you know I'm not like I don't have a jackhammer I'm sitting in like a uh, office building with like fast speed internet and like free coffee like having like mildly entertaining conversations about the world we got it pretty good here <laughs> People don't want to hear that. (laughs) But you're being honest with it. I feel (laughs) right. And obviously, your perspective, and and you're grateful for 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 all that. But um, again, I I I could go on and on and on. But I uh, really appreciate you coming and and hanging out with me. Of course. In the uh, in downtown Wall Street, and just um, 
talking about all these amazing things that you've done. It's it's a it's a privilege to know you Thanks, and man. and to to be a part of this. So thank you for for being a part of this. Yeah, man. So great to be here. Let's do it again uh, tomorrow morning at six. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there, man. Yeah. All right. Our interview ended, and the next day, Kabir walks the red carpet as an official Grammy nominee. Kabir and his team won the Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition, Three Revolutions. The more I reflected on my time spent with Kabir over coffee on that cold January morning, the more I felt like our time was like another secret passageway as we held our lanterns to discover new things. These paths did not lead me to a nomadic shadow, however. In my case, it led me to reading a book. In this interview, you heard Kabir refer to his godfather, Andrew Young. And who is Andrew Young? Andrew Young was born in March 13, 1932. He's an American politician, diplomat, and activist, and he began his career as a pastor. He was an early leader in the civil rights movement, serving as executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and a close confidant to Martin Luther King Jr. Young later became active in politics, serving first as a U.S. congressman from Georgia and then the United States ambassador to the United Nations. Finally, mayor of Atlanta. Since leaving political office, Young has founded or served in a large number of organizations working on issues of public policy and political lobbying. The book that I was referring to, and the one that my lantern ultimately shined a light on, was the book Kabir wrote with his godfather, Andrew, titled Walk in My Shoes, Conversations Between a Civil Rights Legend and His Godson on the Journey Ahead. Some of the things that I learned from their conversations not only included, as the start of this interview referred to the book of Matthew, and he references the book of Matthew as the book of nonviolence. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But there was more. I kept digging into this conversation. This book talked about bridging the knowledge gap, the importance of education, and connecting the dots. But it also brought me back to the curiosity of Kabir, as if this successful man is still yet a kid, peeking in holes, poking through life, and always willing to try something new. Kabir's career and achievements speak for themselves and could headline any major media outlet. But his humility, grace, and willingness to meet you where you are is what stands out to me most. As I recap my time spent with Kabir, I would echo his advice. Pick up your lantern. Follow your curiosities. Challenge yourself on execution. And don't be afraid to get uncomfortable. How do you do this? It's simple. It was as if I was sitting on a chair watching a beer talk to his godfather, Andrew Young, and him in a strong, confident, and calm voice say to Kabir, start with where you are. Thank you for joining us on the Going Solo podcast. My name is Matthew Mayer. Please connect with me on social media, at Mayer Solo Piano on Twitter, at Mayer Solo Piano on Facebook. Uh, reach out. I would love to hear from you. And I so appreciate your listenership.